couple of things. Friends, tomorrow night we have a congregational meeting. For those of you who are unaware, congregational meeting is for members of our church um, to vote on matters of our church and the life of our church. And we're voting on the next pastor or minister for New Life Brisbane. That meeting is happening in Brisbane because it's the Brisbane person who's going to lead that community. We would love to invite you to join us in Brisbane on location at 7 p.m. tomorrow night, if you're a member. If you can't make it there, we'd love you to try and make it to honor that community. Uh, it'd be such a great act of support. But if you can't make it there, you can join online. If you haven't received the link for that, just email us at hello at church.nu. Having said all of that, friends, I would love to begin with prayer. Would you join with me as we pray? Holy Spirit, I'm so thankful that we get to gather in your presence this morning. You are worthy to be praised. Jesus, there are some of us who come and we don't know you today. There's some of us who know you really well, and maybe some of us have become over-familiar with you. That the gospel has lost its its power somehow, not because it loses power, because we have forgotten the power. God, I just really sense this morning, Father, break through. Speak to us. God, anything that's distracting us right now, may it just grow silent. Any thought, anxiety, or worry that's in our mind, any piece of technology that's threatening to steal us away from what you're wanting to do, break through it, Lord God. Holy Spirit, I just pray anything that's not of you right now, we bind in the name of Jesus. Move in this place amongst us. Please, God, we are desperate for more of you. Less of me. More of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as we start the book of Ephesians, my encouragement to you is, do you have a Bible here today? Now, if you have a phone, technically you have a Bible. So what I'd love you to do, why don't you whip out your Bible? Why don't you whip out your phone? Um, I'd love us to get into the practice of something I grew up doing, bringing our Bibles to church. Um, I'd love you to follow along with us in Ephesians chapter 1. If you're at home, duck to the bookcase, wherever it is, beside the bed. Hopefully it's somewhere where you can remember. And pick out the Bible. Open it up to Ephesians chapter 1 because we want to read together, not be read to today. Um, and that's so important. You know, before I had a child, when Sarah and I were expecting our first son, um, his name's Archer, uh, there are two kinds of people. The first kind of person would come up to us. They found out that we were expecting Archer, and, and they would say, oh, this is, the, this is amazing. This is going to be the best experience of your life. And then there was another kind of a person, usually like a 40-year-old man who had tied bags under his eyes, about four or five children. And he would come up, and he wouldn't say congratulations. He would look me in the eye and be like, everything's about to change. And his sense of foreboding would come across. And Sarah and I, in our pride naivety, would be like, not with us. Nothing will change. The baby will change. We will not. And I was firm on that. And Sarah and I loved going to the beach. And when Sarah and I go to the beach, uh, what we used to do, so I, I'm a reader. I love reading books. I um, always have. And so I'd take about four to five books to the beach with me. And I'd lounge down and I'd read you know, different books. And Sarah would bring you know, this pack of snacks and all these different types of exotic fruits and cheeses. And I was adamant. No baby will change my beach experience ever. Those of you who have babies know exactly where this is heading. And then Archer came along, the delight and blessing of our family. Such a great young kid. But, but when we first started going to the beach, I took four or five books and we took all of our snacks with us. And I hated it. 
if you, it, was, it was horrible because we would get to the beach and I'd sit down there wanting to read all my tomes that I'd been waiting all week to dive into and Archie didn't care what I wanted to read. He wanted to run in every direction, chase a seagull or eat sand as one of the like six food groups that he thought was important. And we'd leave the beach and I would feel exhausted. I'd feel tired and I would have these bags under my eyes and I'd hear one of my friends who would be expecting a child and I'd go up and hold him and be like, this changes everything. Until I realized what needed to change wasn't my son, it was me. And so now we go to the beach, just went on Friday, best time. I don't take books to the beach anymore. We take sultanas as the only snack because whatever snack we take, he will want. And so we, we choose something that he will eat. And I don't take books. And as soon as we get there, I know he's going to wriggle out of my arms like he did on Friday. And spend, regardless if there's ways or no ways, thank God there was no ways on Friday. And he just runs for the water. And he's just like running. And, and he, he kind of looks like Jason Mountjoy describes him as Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean when he runs. Doesn't look like he's running with intention, but like he is. And he gets into the water and he just keeps on running. So I'm like chasing him down the beach. I'm walking behind him. And the water just starts rising up. And then he gets to here. And weirdly, he just keeps going. And there's a point where he's like here in the water. And he's still keeping on walking. And I'm like, whoa, that's, that's bad. I promise you he's not going to. It's okay. And that's what he does. What happens though is I leave the beach now and I'm refreshed. I enjoy it. Because I've changed. Because I've allowed the thing that I said wouldn't change me to bring the transformation in my life to find joy in new ways. Why do I tell you this story? Because I think this is a little how we approach Christianity. Many of you today, maybe you're new to faith or new to church or, new to ch- or maybe you've been here for a while, but maybe we think Christianity is something we add on to our life that we control how it transforms us. And so we allow Jesus in a little bit but not a lot. And we get frustrated with faith because it seems to expect a lot of us, take more than we wanted, transform more than we wanted to allow and starts to pry into every area of our life. And this is this kind of person over here who kind of thinks that this becomes religious legalism following God because he's wanting to transform too much. And so we grow tired of church, tired of faith, tired of Christianity. But actually, what Jesus wants to do is boldly, he didn't come in for 2%. Jesus didn't come in to allow us to cling to the very life he came to save us from. He said, I want this to go. Because if you could let it go, the life I have for you is far better. It's far richer. It's far more beautiful. Friends, I wonder if some of us here are tired in our faith because we're clinging to things that Jesus longs to transform. That he's saying Easter was not a weekend in April. It was a reality that we live every day. And in light of Easter, the reason why Tyson, the the, the great young guy that was acting on the video, who was also in our Easter videos, the reason why we used the same guy was because we wanted this series to be a continuation of the Easter narrative. And ask this question, because of Easter, like I would ask, because of Archer, how now do I go to the beach and enjoy it? So too, we need to ask this question because of Easter, how now are we called to live? How now shall we live, friends? And this is the question that the Apostle Paul seeks to answer in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, he writes to a a small gathering, a small church plant led by Timothy, and he's writing to help them understand in the middle of their world, how do they now live in light of the gospel? And so we're going to spend 12 weeks 
I know some of you are like, what? 12 weeks? I was hoping this would be a four-week series. This is the longest series I've ever preached at New Life. Like in my nine years of ministering here, I, I don't remember us ever having done a 12-week series. But that's because here we want to actually go deeper in the Word and become more like Christ. So we're just going to take our time. But I also believe Ephesians is so rich. Friends, I would be surprised if even one of these weeks is lacking in rigor and, and this beauty and an explanation of the gospel. So the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 to 3, are all about the gospel story. The Apostle Paul gives us gospel clarity around what the gospel is. And the reason why we want to spend the next six weeks in the first three chapters is this. There is an epidemic in the church where we are increasingly what I would call gospel illiterate. What does that mean? We, we don't know the gospel. So, and just simply, if I was to say to you right now, turn to the person next to you and tell them what the gospel is, what would you say? Oh, can I go home and prepare, Michael? No, no, no. It's the point. In 1 Peter, Peter says, always be ready to give reason for the hope you have. So we're going to learn the gospel story together. We've got to know its rhythms and its comings and its goings. And then the last week is, gospel, uh, is Ephesians 4 to 6. And it says, well, how do we now live in light of that? And we find the gospel touches every area of our life. It touches our marriages. It transforms them. It touches our workplaces, how we engage at work. It touches how we speak, how we spend, how we, how we lead. And in Ephesians chapter 6, it even touches how we engage in spiritual warfare. You might be new to church today going, spiritual what? We believe that we are in a supernatural world where there are forces that are seeking to squash the kingdom, the effect and the influence of the kingdom of God. But as Christians, we've been given everything we need to stand against them. So maybe you're in church today for the first time. And maybe you're here for a long, you're like here first time in a long while. And you decide to try out church today. And you're like, I started with a 12-week series. What? I was hoping for a 15-minute you know, laugh fest and then get out of here. Friends, I pray today, if you do not know Jesus, that what you hear is you hear a beautiful picture of God. If you don't know God, what my hope is today is that I'm able, using Scripture, to cast for you the vision of who God is. And if you don't know who He is, come and enjoy the next couple of moments together. If you've been at church for a while, my question to you would be, what do you think about when you think about God? What comes to mind? That's what the Apostle Paul spends the first half of Ephesians chapter 1 addressing. We open the book Ephesians and in Ephesians chapter 1 we read Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul obviously didn't do uh, year six English like I did because I was taught that you finish the letter saying from Michael, love from Michael. Paul starts the letter with like love from Paul. And it's actually brilliant. How often do you get a letter? I know some of you are like, I never, what's a letter? Like, what the heck is that? No one gets letters these days. But when you used to write, you would finish it with your name. Paul begins this letter with his name. He writes to the church and immediately he says, hey guys, it's Paul. Now, let me tell you what I'm thinking. It's brilliant. Paul lets us know who's writing the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. What is an apostle? Literally, it just means someone who was anointed by God to build up not just the local church, but the global church and start to plant and have authority across the church. And he writes to a church called the Ephesian church or in a city of Ephesus. Everyone say Ephesus. It's a fun word to say, isn't it? Ephesus. Ephesus, and, and, and this is a city in the middle of the Middle East, in the middle of the Middle East, and it's the center of political, religious, and economic power. 
The city of Ephesus was the center of so much of the ancient economic world. A lot of trade happened in the city of Ephesus. It was a seat of political power. It was important politically because in the center of the city of Ephesus stood something called the, uh, the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. And the Temple of Artemis was to the goddess Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. And all of the goddess of fertility's priestesses were women. Um, it was a, the cult of Diana and Artemis. It was a very pervasive cult in the Roman world. And this building, which no longer stands in that way today, was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you can sense that the city of Ephesus was a tourist attraction. It was a hub. There was a lot of things going on. But what's important to recognize, it was also a place of spiritual activity. Everyone in Ephesus had a spirituality. They all attended cults, pagan festivals, or rituals. There was a spiritual reality happening in the city of Ephesus. And we find out that Paul was actually part of planting the church in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, Paul goes there with a bunch of guys, and they start preaching the gospel. And there's actually a riot that breaks out. It's awesome. The, the church plant in Ephesus wasn't launched by like an interest night or a big celebration Sunday. It was launched by a riot, which is not a good thing, and we're never going to use that for a church planting technique. But there's this sense of these guys rise up and say, how dare you talk to us about Jesus? And they start to persecute these guys, and they get finally peace comes down, and that's kind of the inception of the church in Ephesus. And I say all of this, why? Because Paul is writing to a group of believers who are existing in a city who do not like Christians, and they do not like Jesus, and it is hostile to their faith. And it's good for us to recognize that because we are in a post-Christian world. We're not in a world where people are outside this church going, I wonder what God says. They don't care as much anymore. They're hostile to faith. But it's also important for us to not go, woe is us. We're living in the first time in history when the Christians were, were aggressively hated or hostile. No, 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 friends. We have actually an example here of what it means for a church to exist in a city that did not like Christ. And it's into this moment that Paul writes this beautiful letter to the church in Ephesus. And he begins by saying to these believers in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now we move from the introduction and we get into what is known as one of the greatest Greek poems written in all of Scripture. Verses 3 to 14 are actually in Greek writing one long sentence. If you read it in your Bible, there's full stops there. That's the grace of the translators giving you a chance to catch your breath. That wasn't Paul. Paul's like, watch how many things I can fit into one sentence and keep the sentence running. If this was in my English class growing up, someone would have written underline and be like, sentence is too long. And Paul would have said, I don't care. Because this is Paul flexing his theological muscle. He's like, look how much theological truth I can pack into a sentence. Hey, if you've got nothing to do today just for something fun, try read verses 3 to 14 without taking a breath. It's not that much fun, so hopefully you have a lot of more fun stuff to do than that. But it's difficult. This is what many writers of, ancient, uh, of the Bible would say, of commentators of the Bible. This is the crowning jewel of Scripture, these verses. There is so much depth into it. And friends, you'll notice today, I'm not going to touch on everything. We're just going to jump on a jet ski and skim the surface. But you should scuba dive in your own time. 
because it is beautiful. I came into the coffee shop this week and Val Harvey, like Earl and Christine Reeves, Maureen Oldfield, these guys had a small group and I was there and, and I was like, oh, hey guys, so what are you guys doing? Is this like the brain's trust of new life? And they're like, no, 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 we've got small group. And I'm like, what are you studying? They're like, oh, the book of Ephesians chapter one. Like, this is amazing. These guys like preempting the service. I'm like, why are you studying Ephesians chapter one? They looked at me and like, we want to see if you get it right on the weekend. I'm kidding. They didn't say that, Val. You didn't say that. I know. That was a lie. Uh, please, Val's amazing. But, but I loved it. I'm like, and this is what we should be doing. You should be in a small group. You should be in a small community. There are many questions you're going to have about this, and we don't have all the time to go into it, and also because I've only got 17 minutes left before this massive hook comes and pulls me off the stage. So we've got to keep moving. But this is a beautiful text, and what does Paul say at the start? Praise be to God. Why does Paul begin his instruction by saying, praise be to God? Because here is the church in Ephesus and their attention, affection, and desires are being pulled in many different directions. There is a temple of grandiose size built to Diana. There is social pressure to worship the emperor. It is not hard in Ephesus to find anything but God to worship, just like in our day. Friends, I don't know if you know this, but we are surrounded by things which are pulling us away from worship of God. A guy named John Tyson, when he preached through Ephesians, says it like this, the question is not do I worship, but whom do I worship? If you are here today and you are a a believer or a non-believer, my guarantee you, we all worship something. Well, how do you know what you worship? Where does your time, attention, affection, and money and energy flow freely towards unquestioned? That is the object of our worship. And so too, the Ephesian church were challenged by this idolatrous behavior as well, that friends, they, like us, had many things to worship. The pursuit of romance, political agendas, weird spiritual agendas, economics and and money. And Paul in this moment is reminding them, hey, remember that enthusiastic praise belongs only to God. John Tyson, when talking about the Ephesian church, says he he, he was talking to his friend and his friend comments, it is confusing to me why you go to church and in church you see some of the most apathetic worship of God. Yet those same people, if you put them into a sporting arena, do not seem as inhibited when their team wins. Yes! I praise the name of the Lord. This is confusing to a world which knows that team will disappoint you next weekend, but God remains constant. And every day his victory and his goodness is known. So this is just to Christians today. If you're a non-Christian today, thanks for joining us. Hopefully worship wasn't too weird for you. But when people come into church and they see Christians bored, when we have the opportunity to praise and worship God, there is a question of why did you rock up at all? There was this beautiful moment in the first service where the sound all cut off. Like everything just like, you know, uh, just went badly and we lost power or something. And it was great because we only had the drums and everything was confusing. But what happened was everyone's like, oh, cool, we can, let's just go even harder. And you just heard the voices rise. And I was like, yes. I'm like, oh, this is what, this is what we should be painting a picture of. So when people look at us, there is no question where our energy, our affection, and our praise goes towards. Praise be to God, Paul writes. And the question I would suggest, do you know why we praise God? 
Because this is what Paul spends the next part of Ephesians unpacking. He says, praise to God the Father who, through whom we receive every spiritual blessing. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. So here's what Paul does. This is a great moment. He goes, we should praise God. Now let me tell you why. Number one, because he wants to bless you. This is a truth. I don't care if you've been in church where this truth has been abused or if it's your first time in church today, I need to let you know God wants to bless you. The reason why we don't like that is because we think that blessing means car, house, vocation, money, job, girlfriend, boyfriend, marriage, kids. But God equates it, he goes, with what? Every spiritual blessing. Because cars, money, house, kids, family, they're all good things, but they're all temporary things. And you are a soul who has a body, not a body who has a soul. The eternal part of you is what God is focused on. And he goes, I want to give you every spiritual blessing that will last for eternity. That car will rust. That family will not always be there. But what I want to give you will last forever. See, God's fr- God, if you're, friends, if you're in church for the first time today, God doesn't want to curse you. God isn't looking to condemn you. God wants to bless you with every spiritual blessing. This is why someone who's walking through grave sickness and illness can go, I am blessed by God because they know what it means to have every spiritual blessing. It's an eternal reality, not a temporary one. And this is a beautiful truth. And we're like, well, what does this mean? Michael, I'm new to church. Every spiritual blessing, this still seems like fluff. That's why Paul goes, let me continue showing you and flex my theological muscle. Let me tell you what it means to be blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. He goes deeper and he says, for he, God the Father. And what you're going to find in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul does this great thing. He steps into something that we're afraid of, Trinitarian theology. And he starts to say, let me tell you how it wasn't just Jesus, but how God the Father, how God the Spirit, and God the Son have all been working together for all of time for the salvation and redemption of all things. Let me show you how God has been showing up before you showed up. God the Father, what did he do? He gives us every spiritual blessing we could ever want. Okay, Michael, what is that? This, Paul dives in. For he, God the Father, chose us in him before the creation of the world. Everyone say chosen. Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined. Say predestined. Ask for adoption. One last time, say adoption. adoption. To sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, if you step back and you're like, oh, that's amazing, then your IQ is off the charts. If you step back and you're like, I'm confused, join the club. This is a confusing piece of scripture. What's he talking about here? Paul identifies three truths we're going to touch on today, and the others I'd encourage you to study, scuba dive into in your own time. Paul says, God the Father has chosen us, has predestined us, and has adopted us. Now, here's what's really important when we confront this text. It doesn't say God the Father has chosen you, has predestined you, and has adopted you. Why is that an important distinction? Because this text is often used to, um, as a key text when we start talking about the idea of what's known as predestination or election. If you don't know either of those two terms, I'm okay if you switch off for the next 30 seconds. That's completely fine. But the idea of predestination or election, it was present and worded in the Bible, can go towards the end where we start to say that God in the beginning of time chose this person and then chose uh, not to have this person. So he's gone, 
These are the people I will redeem, and I've chosen these people that I will not redeem. And what ends up happening is that there's this theology that um, is, is uh, not a heresy. It's not an evil thing. In fact, I have many brothers and sisters of the faith who hold this theology that are good, godly men and women in churches on the Gold Coast. But you're listening to Michael today, not one of them. And what I believe is that this text is actually not about did God choose you or did he choose somebody else? Because it's not talking about individual salvation. He's talking about a group of people who God has called, redeemed, and adopted and chosen. This text is not a moment for us to think, wow, there is an invisible ruling of God that some people make it in and other people don't, and God chose who was in and who was out, and we don't know how he made that decision. That's not the point of the text. The point of this text is to actually let us into the fact that before dawn of time, before you were even created, God had already been out working and planning his salvation and redemption of the world. Not in reaction to sin, but in proactivity to sin. God, the great chess player, had already played out the field ahead of time. And before you were born or dawn began, he'd already checkmated the king of sin and knew how this story would finish up. That is the beauty of this to the glorious grace of God. It should make us step back and not go, oh, I'm chosen by myself, but this guy's not. We should step in and go, God has done an intentional salvation and redemptive plan before Genesis 1 because he knew how this story would play out. It should fill us with this sense of awe and wonder, not a sense of, did I make it? This is about God, not us, not me. The only time it talks about us is as a collective family. See, God didn't come to choose a person. He came to build and adopt a family. This is why Russell Moore explains like this. I love it. He says, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not teaching treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. John Tyson would unpack it and go one step further. says, the Father knows us before time. The Father wanted you before time. The Father loved you before time. And we have connection now instead of separation, that we have power instead of powerlessness, Purpose instead of purposelessness. Ephesians 1 is talking about the long game of redemption. That no matter how much we intentionally screwed up the story, God was a better chess player than us. This is not a reactive decision of God who had lost control, but the planned response of a God who knew how to defeat the opposition before it had even played its first move. So there are two truths we should hold on to. And I think Calvinists and everybody else would say this. That God is sovereign and he chooses who he will save. But those who he saves also in response to God's initiating work of salvation choose him as well. Friends, if you're wondering who makes it in and who doesn't make it in, the question is, have you responded to the grace of God? That's the most important question you can answer. Because his grace of God knows you, loves you, predestines and prepurposes you to what? To adoption. Some of you have walked into this room and you are spiritual orphans. You don't have a home for your heart or your soul. And you feel lost in a world that is trying to tell you to find your family or home somewhere that's not healthy. And God steps in and he adopts those who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does he adopt them to? He adopts them to sonship. 
Now, we look at this and we go, I don't really like using the word sonship. Like, I'm, I think it's a bit gender exclusive. And that's because we don't understand the context that Paul was writing to. Paul was writing to men and women who both understood what it meant to be adopted to sonship. See, back in the Roman world, if you adopted someone into daughterhood, that was fast in, far inferior to being adopted into sonship. Because a daughter wouldn't inherit the father's estate. A son would. And so what he's saying to men and women is that you're not being adopted into daughterhood and sonship. They would go, well, that means that men and women, men are better than women because we get sonship, but they get daughterhood. No, in the kingdom of God, this is what Paul's saying. Men and women achieve the status of what you will understand is given to sons will now be given to men and women in the kingdom of God. Paul is not arguing for a gender class system, but a classless system that men and women at the same enter as equal children of God as sons and daughters. And if we get offended when the Bible says stuff like sons, then we should just get offended when the Bible says stuff like you are the bride of Christ. That's also seemingly gender exclusive language, but he's using a social construct to explain a deeper symbolic meaning. It's not being exclusive. It's saying we all get a seat. This is the beauty. We get sonship. What does it mean? It's like The Voice. Has anyone seen The Voice, the TV show? If you haven't, probably don't. But there's a moment on The Voice where people go and they sing. And if they're good enough at singing, what happens is, is that you have three judges and the judges have their backs turned to the stage. If they like what they hear, they hit the button and it turns around. And on the bottom of their seat, it lights up a sign that says, I choose you. If they're good enough singers the judge turns around. What this text promises us is that before the beginning of time, God hit his button before you began singing. And he turns around and you might be like, but I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm a terrible singer, I'm tone deaf. And God turns his chair around and says, I'm gonna teach you to sing as part of my family. I'm gonna make your voice and your life sound beautiful. Come learn the melody of life and the gospel and the harmony of grace. Oh, my friend, I choose you. That's what it means to be adopted into the family. Friends, do you know the Father in heaven? How he intentionally since before time knew you, created you. You were not an accident. You were here on purpose and for purpose. Not only, how do we know this? How do we know, we're ad- how do we know that we are adopted? Because the Son has redeemed. In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. I love that term, lavishes. There are some things I would love lavished, like lychees. I love lychees. You can lavish lychees on me all day. But you know, the other thing I love lavished is grace. When I think of lavish, I think of Tom Hanks in You've Got Mail. Anyone seen it? Great. Go home and watch it. You'll understand this at the end. There's this great scene where Tom Hanks is like scooping caviar onto his plate. Meg Ryan comes along and is like, she's like, that's a garnish. That's caviar. That's so expensive. You can't just lavish it on your plate. And Tom Hanks, who's multimillionaire, just looks at her and just keeps, he's like, I can afford more. It's like this moment of like, right, he's, it's unending caviar for him. This is a great way when I think of God lavishing grace upon us. He's going, yeah, this grace is costly, but it's unending for me. I'm lavishing it on your life. And guess how I did it? I did it by Jesus Christ coming and paying a price through his blood. He redeems you. Friends, God the Father adopts you, but God the Son redeems you. What does it mean to be redeemed? To help you understand this story, the way I would explain it is to tell you the story of Elizabeth Henson in 1955. She found a green velvet jacket that was torn, it was broken, it was disgusting, it was old, it was last year's fashion. So she threw it into the bin. And then Elizabeth Henson's son came along and saw this green velvety piece of trash and thought, I could do something with that. 
And so she goes out, takes it to his mum, and, and his mum goes, what are you doing with the jacket? He's like, can I use it? She's like, no, it's disgusting. It's worthless. And he's like, yeah, but I, can, I could do something with this. So he goes to his room, gets a tennis ball, cuts it in half, and sews it into the jacket. He makes it into a puppet, and then learns puppeteering. And he becomes a little bit more famous. And year after year, and eventually this puppet goes on to win Oscars, goes on to have number one albums worldwide, goes on to have a love affair plastered across screens with one of the most gorgeous pigs of all time. <laughs> Friends, Jim Henson created Kermit the Frog because he saw something beautiful where someone else had seen trash. And this is what it means to be redeemed. But here's the key. He doesn't redeem the jacket for its original original created purpose. He elevates it. It's a purpose that didn't exist before. When Jesus Christ gave his life for you, he didn't want to just restore you, but make you a new creation. Before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we couldn't be sons and daughters of God. We were just images of God in the garden. But now we have a new relationship available to us. He doesn't just return us to be a velvet jacket. We get to become puppet frogs. Go to someone today and be like, what did you learn in church? I'm a frog in Jesus' name. <laughs> it doesn't matter how trashy you feel because at the end of the day, you were not in a trash can because the world threw you away. You are in the trash can of your own decision, rebellious mistakes, and your own problems that you broke in your own heart because of sin. And Jesus comes along knowing the willful intentionality you have placed on rebellion against God in your life. And he goes, I can do something with this. That's the beauty of the gospel. And he laid down his life. He took the wrath of God upon himself and he poured out his blood for you that his blood might wash you clean and elevate you, not just to be someone who is now forgiven, but is now a son and a daughter of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus' blood makes you a co-heir with Christ, which means that when anything happens in your life, God does, when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you and just see your performance. He sees the performance of Jesus, not because you've earned it, but because that's what grace does. You now stand in the finished work of Jesus Christ, righteous and redeemed and being sanctified for his glory and his purpose. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. Have you been redeemed? Are you someone who has declared that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior? Someone in this room right now thinks that they've stuffed up too much, they've gone too far, and God goes into the worst trash cans in history and makes the most beautiful treasures a part of his family. That is the glory of the gospel. Not only does God the Father... Not only does God the Father adopt, not only does God the Son redeem, but how do we know today? How does the world know? How does the darkness in your life know that something has changed? Is it because you come to church? No. A lot of people go to church. Is it because you read your Bible? No. No. See, there's something that God has given to us that marks us apart and sets us, and it's called the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians at the end, it says this, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, when you've heard what you've heard today, with the gospel of your salvation, but then there's something else. When you responded, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. See, God the Father adopts, God the Son redeems, and we receive the God, the Holy Spirit, as our seal. And we, we kind of treat the Holy Spirit as a weird uncle that just pops into the party at weird moments. And we're like, here he is again, everyone doing weird stuff. No, the Holy Spirit is the only presence of God that is with us and in us at all times. He's not weird. He's everything we need for what God has called us to do. And the Holy Spirit is the seal. 
The way I know this is um, the way I know this is important is back in the ancient days, if, if something was sealed with the mark of a king, what did it mean? It meant that whatever carried that seal carried the authority, carried the voice, and was the very symbolic presence of that king wherever it was. And in Christianity, in our faith, in followers of Jesus, when they believe in Jesus, at that moment, we believe, upon believing, we receive the Holy Spirit and are sealed as His. And if the world can do anything, it would make you forget that you are a son and daughter of God with heavenly authority operating as an agent of redemption in a world broken by sin. But the Holy Spirit seals us that's why tomorrow morning when you wake up and go to work and everyone's gossiping, this sense of conviction goes, you are more than this. That's the seal of the Holy Spirit reminding you of the inheritance you've been called to. It's the conviction of the one who God has given us. It's when that moment when you click on that thing you shouldn't be watching late at night or watch that Netflix program that starts you comparing your body or yourself to someone else. When you feel worthless or valueless on Instagram, the sense of the Holy Spirit reminds you that your worth doesn't come from this or what's online. It comes that you were saved and redeemed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. You now have the presence of the living God in you and with you at all times. You've been sealed. And you know why you've been sealed? That one day that you will receive the inheritance set aside for Christ. That when you were in this world, if you were a Christian, you step out tomorrow with the same authority, the same power made available to you, and the same relationship that Jesus Christ shared with the Father on earth is now yours. This is why Paul writes to the Ephesians church, praise be to God who has given us every spiritual blessing. We have been adopted. Friends, you have a home. We have been redeemed. Friends, you are no longer trash. Friends, you have been sealed. You have the authority of a king resting inside of you in the world who needs it. So A.W. Tozer provokes a thought in us. And I ask, finish with this question today. What do you think of when you think of God? A draconian, dictatorial ruler who's distant and far off. Nah, this text doesn't seem to say that. I don't know where you're at with Jesus, but I know Ephesians cries a truth that I have come to experience and believe. God is both holy and other. He is transcendent, far above us, but he's also imminent and closer than your very next breath. And there are people in this room right now who he is whispering to and saying, I want to adopt you into my family. I want to redeem you. I want to seal you. Stop being tired with a life I want you to let go of. My life is far better. And Paul writes this letter from a little prison cell in the middle of Rome on his way to death. Praise be to God. This, this is a power in this letter. Who is God to you? Hey, W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. I don't know what your experience of church has been. I don't know what your experience of fathers have been. But don't let either rob you of who God is. Don't let man's sin rob you of God's reality. Don't pull God down because man has elevated himself in your life. 
Some of us need to allow God to come in and reveal a new word, a new person, a new reality to us and say, I am far better than you ever dared hoped. And I'm here. Do you know him today? Because this church, our faith, declares that God, the Father has adopted. So no matter what happened with my earthly father, I have a home and an Abba Father that says I can run to the throne room whenever I need and cry and call and celebrate and rejoice and the Father holds me close. I have a co-heir, a brother in Jesus Christ who doesn't look at me with sibling rivalry but with sibling pride that he gave his life that I would be part of his family. And a Holy Spirit who is my down payment that when God redeems all things, I will be part of that kingdom. Do you have that assurance today? Do you have that hope? Would you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, I don't know what possessed Paul to write a really long sentence. I don't know what he was thinking unless it was inspired by you. Unless God, in this letter, you knew this. There's someone here today who has given up on God and they need to hear right now more than ever how God is still out there adopting children, redeeming trash and sealing sons and daughters. So Lord, we just pause for a moment. I just create space. If you just... If you want to pray with me just right now, just let's be still. Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? What are you wanting to do in this moment? sense there's just there could be someone here today that when I spoke about that idea of choosing in your mind you you just believed that um, there are so many reasons why God wouldn't choose you and it's like this is someone else's truth it's not for you who are you to tell God who should be a part of his family Who are you to justify to God that you are too far gone for his love? I sense this just this image that God wants to let you know. He slams that button down and he's looking you in the eye right now and saying, I came for you to adopt you, to redeem you, and to seal you today. Are you ready? I know everything. And I'm still here. So I just want to create a moment right now for those people who are sitting here going, I want to be part of this family. I need this. I'm too far gone, but maybe, maybe this is my last chance. And this is your best chance. So right now, if you want to actually come to God and say, God, I not only want to ask for forgiveness, but I want to, more than forgiveness, I want to belong. I want a home. 
I want a father, a brother, and a Holy Spirit to be my seal, my friend. That's what's on offer right now. So if that's you right now, with every, everybody who's praying, I would ask if you would love to pray with me that that would be your reality in this room. Wherever you are right across this room, would you just raise your hand? That's you in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for raising your hand. That's awesome. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Father, right now there are people with hands raised who are calling out to a father they need, to a brother they need, to a Savior, a Lord, a King, and a very present friend. Jesus, wash over them right now. If that's you and you're responding to the gospel, there's a prayer you can pray in this moment that leads us to the transforming work of Jesus Christ. I'd love you to repeat after me. A whole bunch of Christians are going to say it with us. It's not a magical prayer, but it's a prayer we repeat all the time. Would you join with me and just pray these words? Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for redeeming me. I repent of my ways. I want to be part of your family. I want you to redeem me again and seal me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, for everyone that prayed that prayer who needs to know their Father in heaven loves them by their Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray you would move and act and transform right now. Jesus, continue to move and shape all of us into the likeness of your Son. The world doesn't need more Michael. It needs more Jesus. And we believe that. May we become enraptured and captured again with the beauty of who you are, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you join with us as we finish today by worshiping God together?